Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. Coming up on the show today, Christine Ember, Washington Post columnist and author of the new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. Uh, Christine, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. So congratulations on the book. And as you say towards the end, this was in many ways an uncomfortable book to write because it it can be an uncomfortable topic to discuss. Of course, absolutely. You know, I I started writing Rethinking Sex as almost an academic project, uh, looking at the sexual culture post Me Too and trying to identify what the problems were with consent, with how we sort of viewed the concept of sex. But it inevitably became in some ways a personal project. You know, when you're writing about sex, when you're trying to come up with sort of moral ideals and definitions, it's impossible not to begin to also question yourself. Uh, you know, I asked if I was living up to the the standards that I was advising for other people. I was forced to interrogate my own history and my own beliefs around sex and consent and all the rest. And doing that sort of digging is complicated um, and brings up questions that you would have never thought to ask otherwise. Yeah, and I mean, you say complicated. You, it's interesting that you have a, a statistic in the book from the from Pew Research saying that over half Americans uh, think that relationships have become harder uh, over the last 10 years. I mean, that, that statistic comes in a chapter called We're Liberated and We're Miserable. Um, what, why do you think that greater freedom seems to have made things more difficult? Yeah, you know, we're actually at a 30-year low in terms of rates of sexual activity, partnership, and marriage. And it is, in fact, young adults who are leading the retreat from all of these things. Um, and I argue in the book, you know, that this this is an interesting paradox. Post-sexual revolution and feminist movements, um, it was sort of seen that, you know, we were knocking down boundaries. We were getting rid of old sexual norms that were deemed, you know, repressive um, and old fashioned. And we were entering a a world of choice and freedom where we had, you know, all of our options. And that was supposed to be very good. And of course, in a sense, you know, this is good. The sexual revolution and the feminist movements have happened for a reason. Uh, There were problems with how we were thinking about sex and especially groups that were being marginalized. But there is also something to be said for having social norms and boundaries and understandings of what relationships look like, how we interact with each other, um, what we mean when we say certain things. And without having those norms in common, um, without having sort of boundaries we share and also boundaries that push us to perhaps be better than we might uh, want to be in some cases, a lot of people have been left feeling a bit lost, um, whether it's young women who you know, enter into sexual encounters thinking one thing will happen and being totally shocked and alarmed by something else, or you know, young men who feel like they're not sure how to approach someone else because they don't want to be you know, me too or West Elm Caleb, but they're not sure exactly what they should be doing then. Um, and whether, you know, their approaches will be read as something different that they didn't want. I mean, of course, part of the problem is that that intimacy, as you say, makes claims on us in ways that are often uncomfortable, uh, can leave us open to embarrassment, even humiliation. So in a way, vulnerability, it's not even implicit. It's, it's explicit, isn't it? 
Right, exactly. And and vulnerability, you know, can be frightening for all of the reasons that you said. Um, and in Rethinking Sex, you know, I talk about actually how the what seems like the prevailing understanding of sex, uh, according to much of media and culture, is that vulnerability is lame, <laughs> uh, that it's it's a bad thing. You know, sex should be something that we do for fun, but we're not supposed to catch feelings from it. We're not supposed to show our emotions. Um, and that can make people feel safe in that they're then walling off. They're able to set aside this vulnerability or escape it. But most people do actually want that. You know, they they want intimacy. They want care and empathy and perhaps to be seen and loved by another person. So some of those sexual actions or sexual beliefs that we have are not orienting towards orienting us towards what would lead to our real flourishing. Because it's not just a physical act, as you say, it's it's also a transcendent fact. Yeah, I argue in Rethinking Sex um, that sex is unique, that sex is, in fact, spiritual. It's, in fact, not just, you know, a sort of bodily interaction like any other uh, for reasons of its intimacy, its creative potential. It touches us deeply in a way that's unique. And if it is significant in that way, then we should treat it differently and treat it as such. Yeah, you you say right at the uh, the very beginning that uh, at one stage in your life, in fact, until age twenty seven, you practice celibacy yourself. Um, you you also describe that as a state near unto death. Um, what what are the what are the issues surrounding that that particularly complex question? <laughs> well, first I'll say that celibacy is a kind of specific thing. I would say that I I wasn't having sex. Um, although I was still, you know, dating and had boyfriends and all of the rest. Um, and in describing it as a state near <laughs> unto death, I wasn't describing my own experience, actually. Um, I was describing how it was sort of often seen or portrayed by the outside world. You know, people couldn't imagine uh, that somebody could be a full-grown adult and not be having sex. I must feel like I'm missing out on some huge part of life. Like, was I really an adult? <laughs> was I really a feminist or a modern young person if I wasn't having sex? And it was funny. You know, I found that ridiculous because, of course, I wasn't dead. I was not having sex <laughs> and was very much still alive and carrying on with my life and dating and doing all the rest. And I was intrigued by by the oddness of that belief that having sex is what would have made me sort of a real person when in fact I was a perfectly real person already. And I guess the the flip side of that, as you, you bluntly put it, is that there also seems to be an awful lot of bad sex out there as you describe it. Right, exactly. That was another thing that was interesting, sort of being outside of the sexual circle and looking in. For all that people were saying that I should be having sex, I was missing out, um, you know, there was something great out there that I I would regret. As I watched my, you know, friends, you know, have these ostensibly sexual adventures um, and try to wade through the sexual culture, a lot of them did not actually seem to be having a good time. Um, they were engaging in encounters sometimes that they didn't want, that they found depressing or lame or even traumatic. Um, 
And it was unclear to me why I should do that or what was attractive about that. Is that is that why you say that really part of the the thing driving you on in this book um, is is not just about rethinking uh, our bodies, our relationships, our ethics, but uh, in the phrase that you use, that it's about how to rediscover joy? Yes. Well, I started writing Rethinking Sex, started thinking about the question during the Me Too movement, the sort of moment in 2017 and 2018 where these cases are really coming to the fore. Um, and as we saw, you know, Harvey Weinstein, Kat Burson, Aziz Ansari, et cetera, discussed in the public square, it did seem that we had come to a realization that something was off in our sexual culture. Um, that something something was going wrong and we didn't like it. You know, there were people were certainly able to say, yes, that seems bad. This is bad. Things things are bad out here. But there was no positive vision. There was it wasn't clear where we were going to go next to what actually a good sexual culture would look like. And so in rethinking sex, you know, I wanted to sort of identify how we got to, you know, a place of sexual malaise, but also try and give us some steps um, or, you know, potential potential pathways towards a positive vision, not just how to not have bad sex, but actually have good sex, have a sexual culture that we enjoyed. Um, not just saying things are bad, but looking forward to a time where we could say this is good and this is what we should aim for. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Me Too there, and for, for understandable reasons, the book is very concerned with questions about consent. Um, but it's one of the interesting things that that you point out, that that in some ways the, the discussion of that topic has turned into one that uh, is almost uh, like solving a problem in arithmetic, which uh, you argue quite strongly really misses something. Right. One of the major threads running through Rethinking Sex is this, this question of consent. Um, you know, I, I would argue that consent, first of all, is incredibly necessary. We, we need to have it, but it's a legal criterion. You know, it tells us what we are allowed to do. Um, it doesn't tell us what is good. And, you know, I'm concerned that when we focus on consent as sort of the only marker for whether sex is good or not, um, it leaves so much out, uh, whether consent was fairly gotten, whether we should even be doing what we have consent to do, what kind of sexual worlds we're creating at large. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about what is legal, what is allowed, but I argue that we should actually spend more time talking about what is moral, what is ethical, what is actually good. You know, consent is a floor, but it was never meant to be the ceiling of our discussion. But but doesn't the the does, doesn't the fact that we have to focus on the legal aspect? I mean that that is really important, isn't it? Because there's such in some ways there's such a lack of clarity um, for uh, particularly for young people in thinking about those issues. You talk about uh, how that question of consent has changed over time, going from uh, not saying no to saying yes to saying yes clearly uh, to uh, saying yes even enthusiastically. Uh, well, I mean. What what does that change represent, and and how do we keep track of it um, as as it's as it constantly changes? 
That's a great question. Yeah, I write about this, the sort of evolution of consent um, in the book as well. And, you know, we it took us a long time to even establish um, the fact that consent was necessary, uh, that women could say no and should be listened to. Um, and you're right, we went from no means no to yes means yes to affirmative to enthusiastic. Um, but I think the evolution in how we have talked about consent or how we define consent is actually evidence that consent as a phenomenon just isn't comprehensive enough uh, for what we're looking for. Because consent, the, the very basic no means no formulation, you know, encompasses the idea that you can, you can say yes or you can say no. Um, enthusiastic or affirmative consent moves forward and tries to encompass the reasons or the feelings behind, you know, what a yes might look like. So is a yes really a yes if it's not excited? If it's not affirmative, how do you tell what that looks like? But simply framing it again in in, in the phrase of consent, I mean, it's just clear that it, it can't encompass all of the questions that we want to ask. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting that, isn't it? Because I I can understand that that do I have permission is very different to a question as you uh, frame it in the book of uh, how does this make you feel? Uh, but but I I also have this sense that that turns it really into a minefield because how can I really know what you feel? Well, all I can really know is what you say. Yeah, well, I mean, there are two parts here. So again, I think that consent is critical and necessary. And as a legal criterion, um, as kind of a lowest common denominator that we have to, to get to, consent is very useful. But I think one of the problems with our sexual culture and what I want to talk about in the book specifically is also just moving past legalism. You know, I think we, we now understand, most of us, that we should not be sexually assaulting other people. Um, but I think most people want sex that's better than not sexual assault. <laughs> um, they want a higher standard to reach towards. And then what should that standard be? And then there's a difference between, you know, consent, the legal standard, which we have to have and how that's enforced via the law. Um, and what could be seen as a higher standard that is actually perhaps just a social norm. Um, or a shared understanding that may not be legally, you know, written, but is something that we could all share consciously and appeal to, even if we don't necessarily succeed all the time. Um, having a higher goal in mind brings us several steps forward. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting, actually, in the book that, you know, you point out that someone might consent even to use the the, the word that you use in the book enthusiastically. Uh, and yet it might ethically be wrong uh, to have sex with them, that willing the good of the other, you say, is often demonstrated through restraint and inaction rather than the opposite. Yes. Yeah, so the higher standard that I propose in the book is willing the good of the other, Um which is Aristotle by way of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and it implies something different and higher than just getting consent. You know, willing the good of the other suggests that you not just get, you know, get an agreement from the other person, but when you're thinking about, you know, having an encounter, you are keeping that person's good 
at top of mind, caring for that person's good as much as you would care for your own. It also has further implications that you have actually spent some time thinking about what the good might look like, what sex really means, what a good sexual encounter looks like, and then also what the good might be for another person. To understand another person, you might have to get to know that person. Um, It might be harder to realize and think about the good if you are too intoxicated or even in a bad emotional state yourself. And in those cases, I would suggest not having sex, restraining and waiting until you can figure out the good. And of course, this isn't something that is going to be, you know, legally enforced. And of course, this is something that you can attempt to do and still fail. You're right, it's impossible to read someone else's mind in some sense. But I think even just the act of attempting this, of attempting empathy, of trying to keep the other person, you know, in the encounter top of mind and see them as a person, or at least try to see them as a person, is several steps ahead of where so many encounters are now, that it's still an improvement. And it's still something to reach for. Yeah, is that, is that doubly important in the the age in which we live? Do you think? I mean, you you make the point in the book that our sex lives aren't private, uh, and that that seems to me to be one of the key generational differences here. That you know, as as you say, in the first decade of the twenty first century, everything changed when it came to these kinds of encounters because they were almost by definition so much more, uh, or would end up being in the public sphere. Yes. I mean, in that chapter, the chapter, Our Sex Lives Aren't Private, I spend a lot of time talking about dating apps um, and how dating apps have changed the sexual landscape. You know, as early as, or as recently as 2010, it was still most likely that you would meet a potential sexual or romantic partner through friends or family, colleagues at work, somewhere in person. Um and they would be sort of embedded in a community, and you would be as well. And thus you felt some sort of responsibility to to both behave well, because you knew your actions might get back uh, to other people. Um, and also their sort of full humanity was on full display. They were a person you were meeting, not just a face, an option that you were swiping through at your leisure. And that has kind of all shifted with the advent of dating gaps, which are, you know, constructed to gamify the process um, and in some ways constructed to commodify the person as you, again, swipe through profiles that are just pictures and a few words um, and always assume that there is someone better out there um, and that this person is just one option among many. And I do argue that that leads to a, a tendency to sort of forget that the person on the other side of the screen is is in fact a real person um, and to treat them as such. And I mean, you use that word forget that in the modern media environment or social media environment, it's, it's very difficult for anybody to forget anything, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that is the case, or at least it it becomes harder to scrape your own activities offline. Um, but in the case of dating, I mean, there's the phenomenon of of ghosting that by now we're, we're all familiar with, I think. Um, 
there is in some sense this feeling that if you meet up with someone, you know, you don't know them, they don't know you, you're not connected through any network, uh, they don't know your friends or family, you don't know theirs, um, it becomes easier to act badly, frankly, knowing that, well, it's not going to get back to anyone. Um, you don't have any responsibility to them necessarily. And that has, I think, been corrosive to our sexual culture and has led uh, to people feeling free to act on their worst impulses uh, more than they might have in the past. Yeah, and, and there are cultural pressures as well. I mean, you, you have a, a, an amusing moment, almost like that, in in the in the book, where a friend a friend of yours launches a project uh, uh, or something called Project Celibacy, and as you say, somewhat ruefully in the book, that in spite of everything, despite everything you've written in the book, when he told you about it, you laughed. Yeah, because in some ways, you know, I feel like our our culture sort of trains us to find that something like that a bit silly. Um, even as I sort of pushed back against, as we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, the idea when I was not sleeping with someone that I must be missing out on something, um, I, it's almost instinctively trained into me to assume that of someone else. Um, and it's unfortunate, actually, because in some ways that was actually a very wise, a wise project. And, you know, another anecdote in the book, um, in the section, you know, our sex lives aren't private. I talked to someone who's sort of on the opposite side of this, who has sort of bragged about how she is able to order a guy off of Tinder um, because she wants to be able to prove that she can have sort of no strings attached hookup sex herself. Um, and at the one end, you know, there's the stepping back from having sex to try and think of people as people and think deeply about your relationships. And on the other, there's the fully commoditizing someone in both sort of language and aspect um, to be able to back away from that vulnerability. And that's actually seen as, in fact, normal and in some ways something to laugh about. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it is one of the things that you reflect on uh, in the book that that those who uh, say, well, look, we're in danger of overthinking this, you know, get over it. It's just sex. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that goes back to sort of what we were talking about, about sex being significant um, and in some senses sacred. You know, one of the most affecting interviews that I did for the book um, was with a woman who was telling me about her sexual assault. And, you know, she said, it would be one thing if he had just punched me in the face and stolen my iPhone or something, but sex is just a unique way of sharing your body with another person. And so having someone take that feels very different uh, for some reason. And that sort of understanding of sex as something different uh, was really shared by pretty much everyone I talked to, even though it might be phrased in different ways. There was sort of a, a recognition that there was something deeper there, and yet a lack of clarity as to what you should do about that, <laughs> how you should address it, what your sex life should look like to take that feeling into account. And in fact, whether you were almost allowed to feel that, um, whether viewing sex as meaningful was signified that you were old fashioned or repressed or Freudian or something. 
Which I, I suppose is how you end at your ultimate conclusion that, that sex isn't everything, but that it is something. Right. I mean, there, there's an interesting paradox at play um, that, I, that I talk about throughout the book. Um, on the one hand, we have this cultural pressure that suggests that, you know, sex is the thing that makes adults. Sex is the highest experience you can have. It's what you do to be sort of a modern young person. It makes up something of our personality. But on the other hand, it's just an act and you shouldn't have any feelings or emotions about it. And you just get consent and keep it moving. And I suggest that we should rethink that, that actually we are allowed to acknowledge that sex means something and that we should treat it as such. And also to acknowledge that sex is not the be all and end all of our personalities or psyches or the way that we move through the world. Um, and that if we have to, you know, change or limit our sex lives in order to treat other people, to treat our partners with dignity, to make sure that we are not placing our sort of desires over the importance of someone else, then that is actually okay. You know, really the message of Rethinking Sex, or one of them that I really wanted to to get through to readers was that, you know, they weren't weird for feeling that something was off about our sexual culture, for feeling that sex did have meaning and they, they wanted to have meaningful sexual encounters. Um, and that, in fact, we should be thinking of ways to make that a reality, to sort of go after these these real feelings that we really wanted and have a sexual culture that accorded with our our real desires for human connection. And really, that I mean, that's the it seems to me that that's the paradox at the, at the end of the book that um, that essentially you say that perhaps more restraint ironically, might end up giving us more freedom. I mean, really, that it seems to me that's the book in a sentence. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine said to me that rethinking sex um, is ostensibly about sex, but it's, it is also a meditation on, on freedom and individuality um, and sort of liberalism in a sense and what that really meant. And in fact, yes, throughout the book, I, I do kind of make this argument that actually being able to step back and think about our desires to ask ourselves why do we want what we want and what would we want if we had the choice um to be able to to act with our ethical and moral standards in mind is actually freeing it's freeing to be able to make choices not just be driven by either our basis desires or sort of what society tells us we should want so the book is Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. It's written by my guest, Christine Ember, and published by Sentinel. But for now, Christine, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>